and welcome. You are listening to Housing for All, the podcast that believes we all deserve a great home that allows us to flourish. I'm Chris, and my co-hosts are... Mary Hagan. Uh, and also Andrew. Good to be back. What are we talking about today, guys? We're going to start out by talking about this uh, feeling that a lot of us have, that our housing problems are just insurmountable. Um, it just feels like the problems are too big that they can't be solved. But if we take a look at the history of Austria, Hong Kong, and Singapore, we're going to see that that's really not the case. And that's where we're going to start out. After that, we're going to start our discussion of housing systems that are based on public rental housing. Um, in other countries, people actually want to live in public housing, um, but that's not the case in the United States. Uh, so why not? And after we talk about that, we're going to take our deep dive into the housing system of the Netherlands. Mm, we're going to be crossing all over the, the globe yeah. with this one. I'm excited about it. In the first episode, we started out by talking about the housing crisis that we face in the United States. So let's start this episode by discussing the housing crises of some of the countries we talk about in this series. Right. So sounds good. First, yeah. uh, all right. So the first one is Austria. Um, so Austria started building public housing after World War One, and Austria is one of the countries that we're going to talk about this episode. Um, so when they started building public housing, right, they were on the losing side of World War One. their economy was totally in ruins, um, they had a massive refugee crisis, it's pretty difficult to quantify it, uh, just because it was so long ago and the records aren't real great, but it was clearly just an overwhelming refugee crisis. Vienna had a single homeless encampment with more than a hundred thousand people. Whoa! Whoa! Um, <laughs> Whoa! That's like this. That's like larger than a lot of cities. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's not amazing. Yeah. It's horrible, but like that's that's, that's historically that's fascinating. That's gobsmacking. Yeah. Um, so as they were laying the first bricks for their first public housing building, they were experiencing hyperinflation. The way I like to explain hyperinflation is it's it's when it's more cost effective to heat your home by burning cash than by burning wood. Ah, yes. <laughs> and, and yes, there are photos of this happening. Um, so it's hyperinflation means that prices are increasing so quickly that if you buy your groceries 10 minutes later, it will be a higher price. Like the prices are increasing that quickly. Like basically your life savings are eliminated overnight. And this hyperinflation, like I know what hit Austria, hit Germany and kind of like in the case of Germany sort of ushered in a lot of the fascism we see for round two. World War Two, like people wheeling, <laughs> right. wheeling like wheelbarrows full of money to buy bread at the grocery store and stuff like that because it was so crazy and people just felt like out of control. Um, right, right. Uh, yeah, imagine trying to pay for a public housing program <laughs> when you need a, a, a wheelbarrow of cash to buy bread. Crazy. Yeah, just crazy. use the money to make bricks. But, right? but clearly so needed because you also can't have such a large portion of your population... Uh, Without homes. Yeah, I would Hear that, America? It's a real bad idea. <laughs> you yeah. really shouldn't do that. I mean, also, I mean, it must speak to, like, I mean, I, I, this, this obvious statement in the world it speaks to deeper social logistical issues, yeah, too. Obviously. I mean, you can't, you know, if you don't, you can't even buy, if you had a home, you probably couldn't even, like, afford to keep yourself fed comfortably with any sort of regularity, given the, given the economic disturbance, I would imagine, as a non-economist. Yeah. So... Yeah. My opinion means a lot in there, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Planet money over here. Yeah, ooh la la. 
<laughs> so fast forward a few years, there's a brief civil war. And at the end of the civil war, the fascists take power. And so for all of their populist rhetoric, the fascists stopped building public housing and they only restarted the public housing program after the war once the fascists were gone. And so, again, Austria was on the losing side of World War II, um, so their economy and their infrastructure was again in ruins. Um, there was actually a famine where 100,000 people died, and that was about 1.5% of their population. Oh my god. Jeez. So imagine restarting a public housing program in that environment. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just the public housing. So the first housing reforms actually occurred during World War I. So to really cover this, we should go back to before World War I to see what the housing system was like prior to World War I. So in a given year, a quarter of all the residents of Vienna would spend some time living in a homeless shelter. There was a significant portion of the population that would have to move every single month because the landlords would raise rent every single month. Mm. Um, these guys, I mean, the Vienna's landlords might be the worst landlords in the world. They were real monsters. Um, people would rent a bed for six hours at a time, and then they would go back to being homeless after six hours. <laughs> so not renting a room, right. renting a bed. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. So, like, if you worked, like, if you worked, like, a swing shift, you could be like, well, I'm not going to be in my bed while I'm, you know, working at the at the delightful little chocolate desserts mine. You can sleep in my bed while I'm gone, and I will charge you money for it. That's wild. Hmm. Yeah. Um, not unusual to see 10 or more people sharing a studio apartment. And then the war came, and things that were... It was already bad, and it just got even worse. I will say this is really putting into perspective some of the... Uh, I feel like unprecedented is the word of 2020, and this is putting some of it into perspective. Not that we are not in bad ways, and not that this can't happen, knock on wood here, uh, but people have been through some real shit. Yeah. Some real shit in the past. This is terrible. Well, let's move on to Singapore. So when they started building their public housing program, um, there was a really unstable history um, prior to that. And so Singapore was completely devastated from World War II. There was almost no usable infrastructure left. Um, they were occupied by the Japanese and then handed back over to the British, and they were just devastated from the war. They didn't actually get independence until 1953. At that point, they joined Malaysia, but then they were expelled in 1955. So basically, it, they were highly, highly unstable. Um, aside from all that, there were also communist rebels that wanted to topple the government. They were legitimately afraid of a Western intervention like the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. At some point, Indonesia threatened to invade. <laughs> and it's in this environment that they started building public housing in 1959. And at the time, their per capita GDP was less than one-fifth that of the United States at that time. <laughs> so, so even with your, even without the money, it can be done. Right, well, exactly. Well, man, exactly. And, and maybe what this is highlighting for me, since now Singapore is like such a banging public housing program, is that like actually when the chips are down is exactly when you need stuff like that. <laughs> like, yeah, like you can't exactly. like better to do it when times are fat and you have cash and you can like, you know, you can kind of bankroll it a little bit. But like people do need a place to live. I feel like we are very behind 
in this current crisis with that in the United States. It's like all the landlords are like, yeah, we're just going to evict people who can't pay. I'm like, nobody else can pay. Nobody else can pay. So like... Yeah, what, where do you, what, what do you hope to gain? You're just going to, like, cause a mass population to experience homelessness and then just have no income at the same time. Great. Congratulations. <laughs> like, you should work out deals with your tenants. What's wrong with you? Don't be monsters. Seriously. Don't be monsters. <laughs> um, or, you know, the uh, government could do, like, a single goddamn thing <laughs> for us at <laughs> this time. Could do a single goddamn thing. Uh, but they're almost allergic to that. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So I was a little worried, right, thinking back to 1959, imagining what the U.S. GDP was and then taking one-fifth of that. That's pretty hard to – and then, you know, thinking, divide that up over the whole population. That's that's pretty hard to visualize. Um, so, But I think you got it. But just in case you hadn't, I, what I had prepared was that um, there were businesses where people would take clothes off the dead to sell to the living. Wow. Um, that's how poor they were there was a british official back when singapore was a part of britain that called singapore quote a disgrace to the civilized community they also described it as being one of the worst slums in the world Mm. a quarter of the population was homeless so describing homelessness so that meant they were either living in shacks kind of these makeshift shacks like like they had in Vienna um, or shop houses. And so we don't exactly have shop houses here, but basically it's a small building with a storefront and then the rest of the building doubles as the family's home. So oh. a typical hmm. shop house. Yeah. So a typical shop house is it's pretty small, three story building, two bathrooms with 200 people living in it at this time. Whoa! Oh my god. So there's recorded instances of people renting a floorboard, so that way they were guaranteed a spot on the floor to sleep on. Because remember, Singapore is a tropical environment. There's lots of rain. And so to have to sleep outside when, no. you know, when your shop house runs out of room at night. Oh, wow. And then... <laughs> wow. And then we talked all about the race riots last time, too. And that was what was going on in Singapore when they started building public housing. Wow. Well, good for them for, you know, doing something for <laughs> for their people. Doing um, something successful. I mean, that's, that's yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it is amazing. I think you mentioned, like you mentioned earlier, like, <laughs> it, it's perspective can be uh, daunting, but also quite soothing in these times and it, you know it's it's there's a sort of mixture of tragedy at the reflection of the pain people must have suffered in that time but also the fact that they managed to find a way out of it that's 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 uh that's doing good things for me emotionally yeah. people right people are like cockroaches we're very tough but yeah. at the same time i think we would be fools to think that similar things could never happen again you know like right like <laughs> If something has happened in history at least once, it's not impossible that it will ever happen again, unless we make it impossible, unless we choose to pay attention and make it different, which I feel like is what's going on in Singapore. Like, this seems like it was a really bad time, and they were like, you know what? We need to invest in our public housing structure so that we don't ever go back to, you know, paying money for a floorboard. That's not exactly. That's not going to work out. <laughs> so it does. It does give me some hope, but also makes me think like stuff might get a lot worse before it gets any better. I think we can take a hopeful lesson from it. But uh, but yeah, I mean, like 
like what happened with Norway. And we're going to see again this episode where people just kind of forgot how bad the housing system was and then kind of let let it slowly get repealed, kind of forgetting why why the system is the way it is. That's right. Always got to remember where where you came from. (laughs) Right. Um, And we're definitely going to see that this episode. One last one, Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is not on our list, but it's a pretty amazing story. About half of all residents live in public housing. And this is, again, they have luxurious public housing. They've got gardens. They've got recreation. They've got everything. And when they started building public housing in 1953, Hong Kong was receiving 100,000 refugees per month. Whoa. So if you liked the 2015 global refugee crisis, you will love Hong Kong. <laughs> oh my God. The island's population grew from 600,000 in 1945 to 2.1 million in 1951. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Oh my God. And unsurprisingly, hundreds of thousands of people were homeless. Infant mortality was 92 per 1,000 live births. So about (sighs) 1 in 10 infant mortality. That would be among the worst in the world today. Oh, my gosh. Um, At the time, their per capita GDP was one quarter, that of the United States. And there was a lot of people living in slums, obviously. And there were these regular massive fires that would engulf homes of tens of thousands of families. The worst one took out 50,000 homes. Um, But there were regularly fires that would take out 10 to 20,000 homes in a single night. How, like, (laughs) it's hard to kind of fathom what regularly means. Like, is this like a... It's hard to fathom. Like several per year. Oh my God, that's, that's, that's horrifying. That's, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So... Every country that we're talking about in this series had absolutely catastrophic housing systems. Not just these three. They all did. And the positive message I think we can take away from this is that our housing system, or the positive message I think we can take away from this is that our housing problems may seem insurmountable, but the problems we face are actually smaller than what these examples had to face down. And as a country, we are wealthier than all of these places. So uh, these problems that we're facing, they are solvable. We can do this if we find the will to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's sort of the, um, both the the galling and the um, almost tempting part of living through the time we're living through now, where it's galling to know, oh, they've always had this money, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. like you're <laughs> watching them, you're watching them just kind of like pour money into the stock market or pour money towards big companies um, to bail them out, which never, of course, reaches any of their workers and they still have mass layoffs. But um, and, and you're like, oh, so yeah, you actually could get rid of student debt. You just choose not to. Great. Cool, cool, cool. Um, I just worry about, I, I think we have like kind of a fundamental um, refusal to care about other people and greed problem. Like that's, that is the thing that gets in the way of all of the nice things we could have, uh, I think, at the end of the day. It's, it's going to take a cultural shift. I think we have to like kind of move away and expect more. Like, right? They seem insurmountable because we can't, we don't even, we can't even imagine it. But like, if you expected, if you were like, it's actually really messed up that people experience homelessness. 
we like that should be fixed. <laughs> that absolutely should be fixed, and we all believed that on a on a grander scale. I think we could get some. I think we could get some action. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think that most people want everybody to have a comfortable place to live. I think that the it's hard for people to see that there is a different way than what we've got. Like it almost seems like we're just stuck with this and this is the way it has to be. Well, and it's but, and, and capitalism kind of wires us that way quite a bit. I mean, like, you know, I will get to, if I have to have a house because me having a house is more important than other people having a house. And the idea that somebody else might get a house in a way that is unfair is threatening to me because that means I'm not as successful or like winning at capitalism as much. <laughs> right. So <laughs> my score is too low. Yeah. yeah. So it's tough. Like no one wants to be at the bottom of the heap. So we just push people down as we go, as we go, but we're actually just staying in one place. We're just pushing more people below us. Like we're digging our hole deeper, not actually ascending. That's like the problem. So, I mean, but like I, if, if this does not prove to us that something radically needs to change with how we think about money and how we think about lives, I, I, I seriously don't know what will. Uh, in this right. country. Um, but overall, I mean, like, I, I feel, you know, it's been a tough week. <laughs> I'm in, like, uh, I'm in a very, <laughs> I'm in a very weird emotional space right now. I do think that there's lots of hope to be had. Like, I do think that the movements that we see and people willing to kind of look around and be like, this isn't right, is huge. I don't think we've had anything. Qu- I think our generation has been waiting without knowing for a crisis like this to be like you know what is actually what what do these laws and what do these people and what are what are these positions actually serving and they're not serving me so why do we put up with it you know so uh, the first episode we were looking at housing systems based on home ownership now we're looking at three housing systems that rely on public rental housing but they all do so in different ways so three flavors, if you will, of housing systems that use public rental housing. Okay. Okay. I've picked three in order to cover the widest range of ideas. There are a lot of housing systems built around public housing that I could have chosen from. And we'll just talk about a couple. Because like we said in the first episode, we don't want to be picking ideas that have only worked in this one place, like we want to be able to show that these ideas have worked in multiple places. They could work anywhere. So, um, so we mentioned Hong Kong already this episode and last episode about half of all residents live in public housing and two third of that public housing uses the public rental model. Great Britain is another good example. Hmm. In 1980, 33% of all housing stock in Great Britain was public rental, and an estimated 42 to 50% of all Britons lived in public rental housing. They called it council housing. Hmm. Until Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So so by 2014, 18% of housing stock was council. So it went from 33% to 18. And so, yeah, this is not a happy ending. Um, And again, they chose to privatize this housing. Even though the system was working, they chose to privatize it anyway. It's not as though something was going wrong and they were forced to make some changes. So uh, Finland, Denmark, France, Germany, these are all places with a lot of public rental housing or at some point had a lot of public rental housing. The list just goes on. So what I'm saying to you is that public rental housing is a viable model. It's used all over the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... All right. I mean, it can't be this widespread and not work. Right. 
Um, and so since we're talking about public rental housing this episode, we have public rental housing in the United States. So we ought to have a little talk about American public housing. So as we'll see, public housing takes dramatically different forms in different places. But our public housing system has some really bad characteristics that we're just not going to see in public rental housing systems that work really well. So the first one we talked about last time, Andrew, I think you used the term forced poverty. Mm -hmm. So if you make too much money, you get thrown out of your unit of public housing. And so people turn down raises because if they got a raise at work, then they would be too rich for their public housing and they would get thrown out and be worse off. <laughs> Our public housing system is also very highly stigmatized. Only societies most disadvantaged are even allowed to apply. None of the three systems we're going to talk about today do this. All income levels can apply for public housing. Anybody can apply. Some of them give priority to low-income applicants, but there's no housing system that we're talking about today where only the poorest are allowed to apply. Hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, makes perfect uh, sense. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like there should be some sort of some level of preferential treatment just by virtue of the, the level of need. But again, it's all... The nature of public should be available to the public, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a really good segue into uh, the last point here. So public housing in the United States, the rent is calculated separately for each unit as a percentage of income of the people living in that unit. So did that make sense? So if you like, if you two people earn collectively $20,000, they might pay 5% of that. And if somebody earned 13, they would also pay 5%, correct? Like it's, uh, So... So it's 30%. 30%. Um, yeah, yeah. Very five, high. Would be, five would be an optimal, more ideal state. But yeah, so, some fixed percentage of the income at a certain right. threshold. Right. Like it's, it's right. sort yeah. of, it's sort of um, designed to be set so that if we, if we accept that 30% of your take-home pay goes to where you live, they may, that's a sliding scale to make sure that that is maintained for all of their units and allows for some people to make more money to live there, but also some people to make less. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So the problem with this is that it's a complete administrative nightmare to be constantly checking and verifying everyone's income. Right. Imagine yeah. having to track every paycheck, every bank account, trying to make sure somebody doesn't have property that they're not reporting or a bank account that they're not reporting. Um, a better way to do this is to charge everyone the same rent regardless of their income and then use what's called a housing allowance as a safety net for low-income families. So a housing allowance is a cash benefit that you get to help pay for your housing. So this goes to what you were saying a few minutes ago. The housing, like the public housing should be for the public and we shouldn't think of public housing as being a safety net. A better way is to think of a housing allowance as the safety net. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. That makes sense. I can see that, like, especially since um, then you kind of have, then you have individuals working with a, a, a like a business that's entire, that or a uh, department that's entire business is making sure they get the funds that they need to pay for the things that they need to do. And which I suspect would be just way better than expecting, like, landlords um, to do that kind of bureaucratic, like, kind of more bureaucratic work. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so the um, so by having public housing, 
everybody, even if you're not living in public housing, it benefits everyone because it ensures that there's an adequate supply of housing throughout the entire housing system. So you don't have to live in public housing to benefit indirectly from it. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we're seeing this as, uh, you know, this is kind of the whole argument behind sort of defunding the police. It's not like that money just goes away. You reinvest it in your community. Like if you invest in your community and make sure everyone has a safe place to sleep and live and, you know, raise families or, you know, uh, work on their crafts, whatever, then that's better for everybody. Like, you, you know, you will have less crime. You will have less, you will have less uh, misery in your, yeah. in your community. That is, a, that is a net positive. And even if it doesn't directly put money in my pocket, that makes the quality of my life better. And also, I mean, it also just, I mean, this, this might be a bit like schlocky sounding, but it does give the, it, it grants a sense of optimism to people that otherwise wouldn't, have it, I guess, in, in these situations. Who, who who can be manipulated into situations where they simply have no reason to feel optimistic about things, you know? Yeah. So, which, you know, if you, if you feel like you, if, if you can see it, you can be it. If you feel like you can accomplish something, step one, right? You need to be able to to do it. So. Well, but you under, that's exactly why it scares the hell. Absolutely. That, that, out that's, of the yeah, capitalist that's why. overlords, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. if everyone, if everyone is pretty much able to live... And Comfortably, God forbid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Within, within, like, <laughs> within standards. Right? Yeah. If everyone has like a home that's safe and and good, and no one's going hungry, then you can't force them to work for no money. Yeah. You know that's hmm. why it scares them. Uh, and somehow they've tricked a lot of us into believing that it should scare us too, when it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Hmm. The suburbs are not under attack. <laughs> despite the <laughs> despite the uh, speakers at the Republican National Convention. Uh, hey. Yeah. What would that even look like? Like, it's like, I'm sorry, we are now grabbing your suburban home and um, t- enforcing enforcing it into an apartment building. <laughs> like, what? That's not that's not anybody's M.O. What are they talking about? One last point. Um, Public housing in the United States is no longer publicly funded. Hmm. So let that sink in. Is that possible? We no longer spend public money on public housing. We did in the past. We don't anymore. So other countries we're going to talk about today, they actually invest in and take care of their public housing. Public housing in the United States legally must cover all of its costs from tenant rents. Oh my god, what the hell? Wait, so you have shifting rents and you have no additional support for it. So so you can't guarantee a fixed amount of money for this public, theoretically public infrastructure, yet it has to be self-sustaining. Wait, and that's, all, that's that's a cruel joke. That's that just doesn't make any goddamn sense. Also, is it just public housing on some sort of like um, it's like grandfathered in? It, it's tradition. It's not actual. Can that even be considered? It's like at one time we used public housing, public funds to build this this housing here, but now now you're just a goddamn landlord. Yeah. <laughs> like what? Can that even be considered public housing if we don't have public money going into it? That's a very interesting question. We're we're actually going to be talking quite a bit about that later on, but that's a very interesting question. Um, but yeah, so like Andrew was saying, this is not this is not a viable model, right? Yeah. Rent is indexed to the household income, but if only 
low-income people are allowed to apply, it's not hard to see how or it's not hard to envision a situation where tenant rents are below the costs of managing and maintaining a building. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things things do kind of cost a set amount of money, <laughs> you know? And fine if, like, I just I just can't, I, I had no, I did not know before this that we currently do not fund public housing via, mon- via like, public money. Um, that is shocking and horrifying and obviously broken. Like how, like even looking, yeah, looking beyond just like the, the sort of, um, uh, terminological disaster that that represents. Um, wow. That's, that's, that's mind boggling. (laughs) Yeah. So the, the two points here, there's some pretty famous public housing disasters and, Two that a lot of people know about are Cabrini Green mm-hmm. and Pruitt Igo, mm-hmm. and this this funding model is the cause of these fiascos. So basically, rents were not enough to cover the costs of maintaining the building, and then the building rapidly became unlivable, and that's that's all that happened. Now, meanwhile. We have West Lawn Gardens in downtown Milwaukee, and I think that's a better example of public housing in the United States because most public housing actually works really well. Um, that sort of thing doesn't make the news. Cabrini Green <laughs> and Prude Igo they make the news, but West Lawn Gardens in downtown Milwaukee doesn't make the news. Um, so I've got a link in our outline. Um, there's a Wisconsin State Travel Show, and. Uh, when the host came to this part of Milwaukee, um, it's such a great place to live that he made a point of stopping at West Lawn Gardens and getting a tour and talking to residents because it's it's a it's a great place to live. Hmm. Um, and so that video is in the there's a link to that video in the outline. Oh, great, we'll put oh, it on nice, our show yeah. notes too. That's yeah. um, that's that's really yeah. It's I I very much doubt we have a lot of headlines where it's like public infrastructure working as intended. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Everything's going great. And so why do they work? Is it just that they have they've managed to balance out um, re- like the rent the cost of rent um, and the the particular tenants they have um, is enough to keep up with maintenance and like keep the keep the building um, and quality of life really high? You know, I hate to say it, but it's just completely arbitrary <laughs> and random. Huh. Um, if you have Right. Once you get into the situation where your rents fall below the amount you need to maintain that building, then the building quality is going to suffer and then people are going to move out, which will make it even harder for you to take care of the building. So once a public housing building falls to that to that level where the rents are below what they need to maintain it, then um, it's they call it a death spiral. So. Until you get, as long as you don't get to that inflection point, public housing in the United States works really well. Whenever you get to that inflection point, it's just an immediate death spiral. And anybody who can afford to move out will move out, and then the building just becomes unlivable. Yeah. It's just like public schools, where, like, where, like, everything can, everything can go great. You can be doing just fine. You know, you're maintaining you're maintaining your standards of education. Um, kids are getting good grades, good test scores, graduating. All that's wonderful. But then, like, if you have a couple of bad years, they start taking your money away, and that makes it even harder to recover, and you go into a death spiral. Yeah. I don't know. We just love 
We just love to just like let people let let nice things wither on the vine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we're like, well, who could afford this? Um, yeah, I mean, like you would think that there would be a safety net that would recognize if um, public housing was not being able to keep up with its maintenance and would swoop in and provide aid. Like there should be like a threshold. Of Especially that. if there's a determinable point. Yeah. Like a quantitatively determinable point, which this this becomes a problem. Like that that just makes me even more furious because like we, we you know, no, we, we, we can observe the problem. It's not like. Something mysterious. I mean, there are, I'm sure, myriad factors which impact it, but it's not like, oh, God, one day things went terribly awry for reasons nobody could anticipate or yeah, prepare for. Yeah, who could have anticipated this who could terrible, have seen this thing happening again and again spiral. and again? <laughs> this thing that we have a term for and, again, like quantitative evaluation uh, to assess. Like, that's, oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. I feel like I should apologize for the amount of times I've saying, that's just mind-boggling, but frankly, like every single thing you said to date has been completely mind-boggling, um, in a, in a wide variety of ways too. Some hopeful, some profoundly depressing, some uh, some of historical note. It, it just this is this is this is this is wild. Yeah. So all right, well we're we're through all the real depressing okay. stuff. So, Woo, so. Um, <laughs> uh, take a break at least. So, so, yeah. So, all right. So, so, all right. So, with that, we're going on to our first model for today, and that's the Dutch housing system. So, to refresh your memory from last time, when we start a new housing system, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to apply our four criteria to see how well did this housing system work when everything was up and running and before anything was repealed. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Our first criteria is affordable housing, and affordable housing is actually in the Constitution. It's Article 22, if you want to take a look. Hmm. And uh, this this housing system really did meet the goal of universal access to affordable housing. Right. Our second criteria is housing security, and this system does very well with housing security as well. Um, Number three is quality of housing. Is this housing that people really want to live in? And this housing system does really well in that regard as well. And then our fourth criteria is housing maintained to last for generations. And the Dutch housing system has a clear budget for long-term maintenance. Hmm. It has a clear mechanism for rehabilitating low-quality housing. So it's a really good housing system. Very nice. And... For reference, uh, the home ownership rate over the time period we're talking about is about 45%. Hmm. So a majority of people are renters in this housing system. Hmm. Okay. Which is good because this is a rental housing system, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, okay. So um, okay. So how does this housing system work? So our first flavor is vanilla. So like I said, we've got three different housing systems. They all use public rental housing with kind of a different flavor. This is just a very straightforward system. It's like plain. Um, That's why I picked it so that it was just a good one to start off on. So a very large proportion of housing stock is public rental housing, 40% of total housing stock. And if we're looking at only rental housing stock, about 75% of all Rental housing stock is public rental housing. Oh, so hmm. huge. Yeah, yeah, very big. 
Um, so we're going to have to pause for a second and ask a kind of strange question. So what is public housing? Like, what do I mean when I'm saying public housing? Like, how do you know that unit of housing is public, but that one is not? Like, what does that mean? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, my, my initial assumption, which I think has been proven quite a bit wrong, at least in America, is that it's housing that is uh, financially made possible via public funding, you know, it's, uh, taxpayer dollars, um, potentially grants or something like that. So, so something that is intended to uh, use public resources to help people who need help. Um, I think as we've seen across different international examples, that could be people who are at a, at a lower income or people who are just starting out in the world and ready to buy a home, potentially. Um, yeah, I, I would just, I would, simple like, simple description would be like, you know, housing that is paid for with taxpayer dollars to help other people who can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, spoiler alert, the <laughs> kind of the thesis for the next two episodes, our last two episodes, is um, that everybody, by that definition, then everybody lives in public housing. Huh. Um, huh. Interesting. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, but you're, I mean, you're on the right track. Yeah. The way I'm using the term public, I mean, government supported. So okay. you hit that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but also nonprofit and social mission. Mm, okay. So you'll notice um, that there's, I don't say it's government owned. Um, So I tried splitting public housing into public, meaning government owned and private nonprofit owned, Um, but it just didn't make any sense. (laughs) So for example, in the Dutch and the Swedish housing systems, public housing is run by nonprofit corporations that use funding from the federal government and legally must follow a social mission, right? So nonprofit funded by the federal government and legally has a social mission that it has to follow. Mm -hmm. In the Netherlands, these corporations are private nonprofit. In Sweden, those corporations are owned by city governments. So this is really a distinction without a difference. Hmm. So does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's sort of, it seems like it doesn't really matter who owns it. It more matters why it exists and that it is a, it is not a, um, it is not a profiting business in and of itself. Yes. Like as long, as long as you hit those things, then it's, it makes sense versus saying like the government owns this building, the government could own a building and not and not treat it as public housing. Yeah, like courthouse, but, for example. Yeah, or yeah. or like they could they could profit, right? They could yeah. profit a and they for could courthouse, <laughs> for example, or not have a social mission if they could just make money from it. Yeah, yeah. So exactly, that makes sense. exactly. Yeah, it's not exactly. a, it's not a good enough. It's not a it's not a uh, exact enough definition. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. And so some people will use the term social housing to indicate both types we're just going to call it public housing because that just i think makes the most sense so in the netherlands public housing is owned and operated by nonprofit housing corporations so these things date back to the 1800s and the oldest goes back to the 1850s and in their original form they were simply charities that were trying to provide affordable housing to the netherlands poor The Housing Act of 1901, that's still in effect, created state funding for these 
housing corporations and formalized rules for how they operate to ensure that they always serve the public. And the thinking here was kind of, well, these things already exist. Government-owned housing does not. Mm -hmm. So let's just build on what we've already got and is already kind of working. Investment in public housing has waxed and waned over the decades. Periods of large investment included the 1920s, um, but especially the 1950s to the 1990s. Hmm. So... Uh, like we said, none of the systems we're going to be talking about today stigmatize public housing. And so the way that this is accomplished in the Netherlands is that 80% of all vacancies are reserved for households with incomes below 37,000 euros per year. Um, so that's a pretty strong preference for low-income households. 10% are open to households with income between 37,000 and 41,000 euros per year. And then 10% can be rented to anyone. There's no income limits at all. Anybody can apply. Hmm. This makes a lot of sense to me, too, because like when I think about something that I've seen as sort of a trend in these places that we've talked about, and then it could change depending on, on where else we go, but like the Netherlands, Singapore, like these kind of places are places that I think of as being culturally rich and... Um, and stable, you know, like these are places where, you know, crime is not rampant. Uh, I would feel comfortable as a woman walking around at night for the most part. Um, and I wonder if that has a lot to do with public housing. I wonder if there hmm. is sort of this idea that by making it possible for uh, as opposed to like something that's going on in San Francisco, for example, hmm. where basically we've just pushed, they've just pushed any any poor people out of the city because they've just they're priced out. I wonder if allowing kind of a mixed income group um, allows you to maintain some of the uh, like you need all you need that all of those groups of people together in the city to make a city work and make a city thrive. And I think I wonder if that has uh, if if they can be complemented on that because of their public housing. Something to think about. I'm gonna pay attention to the other places <laughs> that we go. Yeah. Okay, so continuing with the, with how the public housing works. So rent is based on a points system. So the more amenities an apartment has, the more points it gets, and therefore the higher the rent. So a millionaire would pay the same price as a middle-income family. They would pay the same price as a poor family for the same, you know, for the same apartment building or the same unit of housing. Um, although the poor family would likely get a housing allowance to help with rent. Okay, so does mm -hmm. that make sense? So it's sort of um, there's this sort of an inherent if you there's a there's a benchmark and if you can't meet that benchmark on your own you get help right is that the conceit kind of like if you can't afford I'm gonna get the numbers all kinds of screwy again I'm sure if you can't afford like a hundred thousand euro home you'll get a boost is that is that correct like you'll get part yeah of it. so yeah. it's it's just if your income is below a certain threshold, then um, I think usually it's it's phased in um, just a, like a, some just a cash payment to help afford rent. Mm -hmm. um, That's interesting. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think it kind of reflects how we think about housing more capitalistically. The nicer apartments are going to cost more money. Right. Yeah. If your apartment has like a pool and a fancy gym and, you know, granite countertops, all the bells and whistles, that is more expensive than, like, you know, a, uh, like a flop house kind of apartment. But 
the difference, I guess, there is that um, that because so much of it is set aside for low-income families, and low-income families can still potentially reach this through a housing allowance, it doesn't truly bar anyone from living there. Um, I guess provided that they aren't like just like, oh, it's just crazy. All of the ten percent of the no income limit, all those people get the nice places. Like, that would <laughs> yeah. be very tough. That would be a tough look for for this public housing uh, arrangement. But um, it's such a small number. I would assume that there there must be a fair amount of ho- of, ho- of like housing allowance situations. Yeah, I actually, um, yeah, I actually didn't look into into the like how, what's the percentage of people that get housing allowances um i know i mean i know people still get housing allowances in public housing because again the the public housing isn't the safety net it's the the housing allowance that is the safety net yeah um so i just want to make sure we're on the same page about the so the rent is is not adjusted based on what your income yeah. is the rent yeah. is calculated based on the amenities that your apartment has and everyone's going to pay that same price mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess there's an argument to be made there where the more amenities you have, the more maintenance there is, so that allows the rent to potentially get fed back into your building, and then we just accept the fact that to make it more equal among people of different income types, um, f- families can get housing allowances. Yeah. So that they can still live in this, live in places that have more amenities. They just also work with. Uh, they need to work with a housing allowance to, to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel totally great to me, to be honest, but yeah. I, I guess I can see the logic of it. Sure. Okay, so no surprise with this one. Once you move into public housing, you never have to move out. And so if you're in that 80% that had an income below 37,000 euros per year, and then you become a millionaire somehow, um, you don't have to move out. You can live there forever. Um, and it's a high quality housing. There's no reason you would want to move out. The rents are, you know, your rent doesn't go up. Um So putting this all together, it's really not surprising that residents of public housing are a cross-section of Dutch society. There's just people of all income levels living in public housing. Mm -hmm. Oh, although that makes me feel a little differently, I guess, about the points system. Because on the one hand, it could be something where it's like you're a young family, you're starting out, you don't have that much money. You move into an apartment that has the things that you need, which may include amenities that are outside of your price range you start getting a housing allowance. As you gain, you know, upward mobility, economically speaking, you still pay, you still are paying that rent, you just, the safety net might fall away from you because you don't need it as much anymore and then it goes over to another family. I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah. That makes me feel better about it, I guess. Yeah, no, I think that's a good explanation. And uh, uh, one last factoid that I found Half of all public housing in the Netherlands is single-family homes. Just an interesting factoid I found. That is surprising. I think we always think of, I mean, like, and I automatically, I think when I think of rent, I think of apartment buildings. But, um, but like, that's that's cool. I mean, I mean the Netherlands has a ton of room, so like, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not surprised. I feel like every, uh, like, little... Uh, little village I've ever seen is made up of all these, like, tiny, cute homes. So that makes sense. But I think there's also probably some inherent bias that I'm bringing into this as an American. I typically think about public housing as being apartment buildings as well. Yeah, I think that's pretty normal. And we have a lot of single family 
public housing in the United States, too. But that's just kind of not the idea that most people have of public housing. Yeah. Well, and also, I feel like when you, or at least me, when I think about it, it's sort of like Habitat for Humanity, which I actually don't know if that counts as public housing. Hmm. I mean, like, it would, I mean, it's nonprofit. I never considered that either, actually, because it is, I mean, I guess if if public housing isn't publicly funded and it's just a nonprofit, then why not? Which which (laughs) feels like a, which feels like, I mean, not that Habitat for, I don't actually know very much about Habitat for Humanity. I, th- there are parts of it that kind of like make me have a knee-jerk reaction. But um, namely the fact that they're like, we're going to send a bunch of amateurs over to like build <laughs> wells. Anyway, <laughs> um, not great. That's never great. Uh, but the the idea, I think like the the very libert- libertarian view I have of, um, and I think a lot of people do of Habitat for Humanity, is it's like, well, they're getting you out of public housing and getting you into a single-family home. Like, let's get you out of that apartment building and get you and your family a house with a yard. Like, it's <laughs> like very up by the bootstraps, American dream, which feels icky. <laughs> feels wildly icky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, so I, um, well, we're not going to talk about Habitat for Humanity mm-hmm. directly, but our fourth episode, the last episode, is really explores that question of where is that line between public housing and and private housing in the United States? And uh, I don't know that there is one, hmm. uh, but that's uh, much more to come on that. Um, Interesting. I'm excited so, about that. I, I feel I can feel the case like growing in my brain. So I feel like I, I feel like I'm picking up what you're putting down, yeah. but I would like to see all the pieces fall into place. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to those. Um, so, um, okay, so then the Netherlands also has a small for-profit rental housing sector, and rent. Uh, uh, so, for-profit rental housing is rent controlled using the same points-based system as public housing. Okay. Okay. Yep. No, that makes sense to me. Um, now, if you get up to 143 points or more, then there's no rent control at all. Um, so in practice, that's just the largest, most luxurious housing. Gotcha. So how much is actually, how much of this is actually not rent controlled? Um, so 72% of for-profit rental housing is subject to rent controls. So it's the vast majority is subject to run controls. All right, so if we do a little arithmetic, only about one quarter of rental housing is for profit, and of that, three quarters is rent controlled. Hmm. So, so what you're saying is there are four houses in the Netherlands that are both <laughs> for profit and not rent controlled. So there's, so yeah, so about uh, one sixteenth of rental housing is for profit, no rent controls. But if we, that's only if we're looking at rental housing. If we look at a percentage of all housing stock, only about 13% of all housing stock is for profit rental. And so that means that only about 4% of all housing stock is for profit rental, no rent controls. Well, and it makes sense because, like, if you have this, of course, like, they've, it's partitioned out such that there must be people who just kind of get shut out of the public housing. Like, you know, like, if only 10% of top earners are eligible, like, some of those, like, a lot of people, 90% of those people are going to get shut out, right, Um, from those possible units. But if that's, if that's just the norm... Then yeah, that that puts pressure on the on the private sector of this to kind of keep up with the the standards 
and and the um, the rent prices, I would think. Yeah, if you if you charge like a hundred times what this yeah. what expect expected rent would be, you're probably not going to rent your your property. I would right. assume, right? Right. Yeah, I would think so. Like to stay competitive, I, I think mean, who, that you. Who knows? <laughs> I, I mean, like this is like what we this is what we think about when we think about. Um, like a Medicare for all and things like that, where if everybody has health insurance, like, you know, a bypass surgery costs X amount of dollars, mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. <laughs> like that is how much it costs. You don't have, you don't have quite as much like, well, it kind of depends on your insurance and also where you went. And um, did you see it? You know, did the nurse who's outside of your uh, insurance coverage touch you once? Because if so, like, you know, there's less nickel and diming. It's just, it, it is what it is. And you, you have more stability um, and less just like wildly out of control price gouging, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. Yes. Um, so then, another regulation for for-profit rental housing—it's called indefinite length of tenure. So we're going to have to spend a minute on this because in the United States, length of tenure regulations are extremely rare. Like, there's just a handful of places that have them. So to make sure we're all on the same page, the two most common types of leases in the United States are year-long leases and month-to-month leases. Mm-hmm. And so for a year-long lease, at the end of each year, the landlord can decide not to renew your lease, or he can decide to increase your rent. And for a month-to-month, the landlord, usually it's that the landlord can terminate your lease with 60 days notice. So in other words, if you were living in an apartment for 30 years, your landlord still has the power to throw you out. Um, You can just not renew your lease. Even if the landlord just bought the building yesterday and you've been living there for 30 years, the landlord still has the power to just not renew your lease and throw you out of your home. Mm-hmm. Makes makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, especially since so much of this some so much of this like qualifies uh as public housing, you would also expect that type of uh basic rights, I think, to translate over into the into the private sector as well so this makes absolute sense yeah so and and it does so indefinite length of tenure means that your lease lasts forever until you the tenant want to move out Hmm. so when we say indefinite we mean forever so the landlord never has an opportunity to not renew your lease or to raise your rent Um, the landlord can throw you out if you fall three months behind on rent, if you destroy property, if you disturb the neighbors, or if the landlord's own house burns down and he needs a place to live because he's homeless. Oh. Um, but other than that, you can live in your home forever. That last one is like a, <laughs> like a, like a law a child would make up because it makes so much <laughs> sense, but also is very quaint. Also, I'm sure there's some film, some European film from like the 70s that explores that as a romantic conceit for a, for yeah. a story. Or, like, <laughs> or a conceit for two men to like discover friendship between oh, yeah. themselves. Two grouchy, a grouchy old landlord, grouchy old tenant. Yep. <laughs> and like one of them's real clean and the other one's real messy. Yeah. yeah. But da 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 da. Guys, if, I mean, you know, I think if anything else, this is, uh, we should be clear, this is now the backdoor pilot for our own show, Odd Old European Couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I mean, yeah. I think, <laughs> I think that this, I think actually exploring public housing is a, is a wonderful, um, is a wonderful breeding ground for sitcom sitcom plots. <laughs> <laughs> nothing else, people thrown together, different sides of the tracks. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
the public housing is working, you're all on the same side of the track, which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, basically living in for-profit housing is like living in public housing. You have the same completely secure tenure as public housing and the same rent controls as the public housing. Hmm. And the question kind of naturally is, how did this come about? So from the 1950s to the 1980s, 95% of all housing construction was subsidized by the government. And so since they were subsidizing so much housing, rent controls on for-profit housing seemed like a pretty reasonable expectation. Right. Hmm. And I suspect <laughs> it's not that different here. We just don't have those expectations. Yeah, that's it. No, that's exactly right. So tune in for the next two episodes because we're taking that exact question. You probably, you know, you might have heard 95% of all housing construction subsidized. That's government overreach. But that's basically what we do here. Um, so we j- so anyway, anyway, tune in. <laughs> yeah. Um, have the the scales lifted from your eyes on the sham of of, of the government interfering with our housing but not doing anything for us in return. Uh. Okay, so uh, so what happened? So we always end by looking at what happened once everything was up and running. Did things get repealed? What stayed the same? And this is mostly a happy ending. So let's talk about some changes that did happen. So the Netherlands was a majority renter country into the 1990s, Hmm. and now they're a majority homeowner. So in 1947, 28% of people were homeowners, or 28% of households were homeowners. Um, In 1993, it was up to 46%, and today it's all the way up to 68%. Hmm. And so it's kind of in this context of increasing homeownership, that public housing as a share of total housing stock fell from 40% in 1993 to just under a third today. So in other words, so some public housing has been demolished or privatized, but not much. The bigger reason that that it's falling is simply because they've stopped building new public housing, but construction of other types of housing has continued, particularly owner-occupied housing. So, owner-occupied housing just means, I bought this house, it is now my house, right? Yeah. Okay. Then there was one other major change. Um, Two- and five-year leases are now allowed for for for-profit rental housing. You can only get one, though. If you renew a two- or a five-year lease, then that renewal will automatically be indefinite. Ah. Hmm. So, you have to be a real bloodsucker. To decide, because like what, the reason to like throw people out is that you want to raise rent, right? And pretty much in this system, that's why you would do it. Or they're like you know jerks. But if they were jerks, you could throw them out in the indefinite clause anyway. Like if they were causing damage or um, disturbances in your building, you would kick them out. But uh, the only reason is if you were like in a new hot area spot of the city and you were like i'm only going to do two two year leases for a while because people are moving around a lot and i want to jack up my price (laughs) every two years right right. but it's way better than here where your landlord can pretty much raise your rent every year completely like completely unsupervised by anyone right and not doing anything for you and not doing anything (laughs) for you yeah The biggest issue that the system faces right now, though, is that housing construction just hasn't kept up with population growth. Uh, 
And so there's a housing shortage in Amsterdam and to a lesser extent in other cities in the Netherlands. Um, so there's just long wait lists for public housing. And, you know, that's not a secure housing situation if you're living in housing that you don't like on a waiting list for housing that you want. That's and true. then obviously when there's a housing shortage, there's going to be rising rents in non-rent controlled private housing. Um, but that's overall a pretty small proportion of housing. Yeah. Those are those blood suckers just raising <laughs> the rent every two years. All so, four percent of them. All four percent of them. Yeah, all, all all ten houses in Amsterdam <laughs> that fall under that category. Now I'm sure Amsterdam is like where most of them are, because um, it's a big city. Yeah. yeah. So by our four criteria, um, number one, housing is still by and large still very affordable. This housing system still does well with housing affordability. Number two. The housing system still has a lot of security, but clearly that's been weakened a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, number three, the housing is still high quality. Number four, it's still maintained to last for generations. It's just a really good housing system, even though there have been some changes. Yay, huh. Netherlands! I'm really huh. excited that that's the vanilla version. I thought that yeah. there was going to be some major like sad trombone wah wahs, and there there are some, <laughs> but it's not so bad. Like that would be better than what we have here for sure. And now I'm excited to hear about like the mixins that also, we're you know, get into. Uh, Amsterdam, uh, congratulations! Yeah. You, be you beat Norway. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> you won. Yeah, that's I mean, true. <laughs> I don't know that's if there's true. any rivalry between Norway and, and the Netherlands, but now there is. Yeah. Oof. Sorry, but sorry about that, guys. <laughs> Mixing stuff up, causing yeah. problems <laughs> in the EU. <laughs> Okay, thanks for listening. Um, you'll join us next time for part two. Once again, too much to talk about in one episode. So we'll be back. But you can always find us um, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, however you're getting your podcasts, wherever you're getting your podcasts, the finest purveyors of podcasts, we are there. You can also find us on um, Chris's organization's website, housingnumeral4.us, or also the podcast website, outrageous at outrageousmechanisms.com. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 <laughs>